0: Кадры, которые мы получили только что Владимир Путин, в пове никто
1: не слушал. Это Навальный, я уже видел свою работу, а сотрудники безопасности годом вас. С Новым
0: веком.
2: As Ukraine launches a fresh offensive to retake Russian occupied lands in the south, another struggle is taking shape that will likely be as consequential as what happens on the battlefield, and that is the energy war. In the aftermath of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the West responded in part by placing sanctions on Russian oil and stopping the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline project. But with Europe still highly dependent on Russian energy, Moscow still has some cards to play, and now it is playing them. Russia increased its oil exports to China and India and cut off its gas supplies to Europe, causing shortages and skyrocketing prices. Putin's play here is clear. Weaken Europe and the West's resolve to oppose its invasion of Ukraine by using energy as a weapon. But with world energy markets in transition, that strategy also carries risks. With With winter just around the corner, Putin's energy war on the West is about to take center stage. So what can we expect? Well, stick around because I got just the guests to unpack it all. Hello from my makeshift home studio in Washington, D.C.'s Funky Adams Morgan neighborhood, and welcome to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UK McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from Los Angeles, California, is the one and only Agni Agrigas a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center and author of the books The New Geopolitics of Natural Gas and on Crimea, the new Russian empire. Welcome back to The Vertical, Aknia. It's been way too long. In fact, I checked them. Your last appearance was in 2018. Good to see you.
0: Great to be here. And indeed, time flies.
2: Time flies. And also joining us from Cambridge, Massachusetts, is Benjamin Smith, a research associate at Harvard University and former European Energy
1: Security Advisor at the U.S. State Department. Welcome back to The Vertical, Ben. Hey, Brian, number one fan, Ben Schmidt here. How's it going? Great to be here. Great to see you, Agnia. Good to have you. Great to see you, too. All right. Now that we're all here, let's get rolling.
2: Agnia, let's start with you. Um, You've been writing for years about how Russia has weaponized energy and how changing global energy markets, particularly the rise of LNG, has somewhat limited its ability to do so. How do you see the current standoff over energy unfolding in the current environment? What should we be watching for? What should we be paying attention to?
0: Well, um, the situation right now is very explosive, but certainly it was coming. This should be really no surprise for folks that have been watching Europe and uh, its energy predicament uh, for decades, as they have been. So the main things I would say to watch for right now is, though we're seeing a lot of countries wake up to Russia's energy weapon, um, the key country to watch for at uh, this critical juncture is really Germany. Uh, Germany is Europe's you know, preeminent industrial power. It's the largest gas importer in Europe. It's Gazprom's number one customer in Europe. It's, again, very much dependent on gas imports. So the decisions Germany will take and how it will solve its uh, gas predicament this winter is certainly the the key piece of the puzzle. Uh, American LNG is another element to really watch for. Um, Again, the U.S. has emerged as uh, the largest energy producer in the world. Its um, LNG exports have been very competitive in the European markets, but can American LNG serve that need this winter, essentially meet that gap, is another key question for us to watch. For me, it's also interesting to see what's going to happen with Ukraine's gas transit system, um, you know, as this winter continues and in the future. I mean, that's... uh, you know, I mean, it's, uh, the expectations were always there, and Russia had said it explicitly numerous times that they will stop using this gas transit system. And then there's the alternatives, alternative piped gas. Um, there are a number of projects that are... One that has come online already, it's the Caspian gas, the Southern Gas Corridor. So that could bring Caspian gas to Europe, and it is already, but whether those volumes could be increased, and by how much and when. Then there's the element of the new Norway-Poland pipeline. That's, um, you know, again, nearing completion in an, another project. You know, how much can that uh, eliminate the dependence on Russia? And now new discussions for the Iberian um, peninsula pipeline, bringing uh, gas from Spain and Portugal to France and further in, into mainland Europe. So there are some alternatives, but how all of this will play out, particularly this winter, um, I think is... Uh, you know, the critical thing to watch for.
2: Yeah. And the, and the time horizon is something that <laughs> this is something that I, as, not as a, as a non-energy expert, I have a, have a hard time wrapping my head around. I see all in all of these things you spelled out, the American LNG, the, 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 the Southern Gas Corridor, the Norway-Poland Pipeline, the, the Iberian, mm-hmm. uh, po- Spain, Portugal, France. These are all good developments. I'm worried about time horizons, Agnia. Do do you have any visibility into the time horizons? Whether because winter's just months away, we're in August now. It's just it's just a few months away.
0: Exactly. Well, some countries have solved. You know, have done their homework in the years. Um, Prior, So, you know, Poland has its large LNG import terminal, Lithuania has an LNG import terminal. I and mean, there are actually a number of countries that have LNG import terminals across Europe. The, the troubling element is that Germany does not. Now, of course, Germany has also announced that it will build its uh, a smaller scale, uh, you know, multiple LNG import terminals as soon as possible. But again, that's uh, we are on a very short time horizon. So some countries that do have LNG import terminals already will be able to weather the storm. To what extent they will share these resources with their neighbors um, is another interesting question to watch. You know, it's, um, I wonder how much, um, you know, Poland, for example, will it be willing to some, send some of that gas to Germany? Let's see. Let's see if we're going to see some resource nationalism this winter.
2: Do you see that as a real possibility? Because we, I mean, the the Poles and the Eastern Europeans have been pushing for a common European gas market that European negotiates as an entity rather than individual countries, because that makes it powerful. You have an economy of scale there. Uh, Other countries, Russia prefers, of course, to deal with individual countries. Do you see gas nationalism coming up within the European Union? Because that would just add another headache that none of us really need at the moment.
0: (laughs) Well, you know, it's been very interesting how the the tables, you can say, have turned. It was the Eastern and Central European countries that historically have been dependent or, you know, a lot of them 100 percent dependent on Russia for gas imports. But since Russia's gas cutoff, since really the 2000s, 2000, since 2009, they've taken a lot of action and they've solved a lot of their issues. And they're also the ones who were always advocating, you know, let's uh, negotiate uh, together, let's have a common European energy policy versus, uh, let's say, you know, again, the more Western European countries and, you know, Germany is a prime example who thought, well, you know, we'll manage that relationship with Russia. Somehow we'll just do our deals and we won't get political about it and we'll get those cheaper prices. And, you know, therefore the Nord Stream 1, uh, the Nord Stream 2 projects. So the tables have turned now, and I think Mm it will be interesting to see how that plays out this winter.
2: Yes, and it's worth pointing out that your, your native Lithuania, if I'm not mistaken, was the first country in Europe to completely free itself from any Russian hydrocarbons. Am I correct in that?
0: Well, it was the first to announce that it will not be purchasing any Russian hydrocarbons. And this is, you know, and the fact that Lithuania has done this shows that also other countries certainly can follow suit. Lithuania up until 2014 was 100 percent dependent on Russian gas. It built a small floating LNG import terminal in 2014. Uh, quickly started di- diversifying. But, you know, Russian gas remained an important element of its energy mix, uh, Russian oil as well. And now it has the uh, full capability to completely say no to, well, what what is being called, uh, you know, uh, blood oil and blood gas, uh, mm-hmm. essentially.
2: Yeah, and if Lithuania can do it, one has to wonder, why can't Germany do it? And for that reason, I want to bring Ben into the conversation now. <laughs> ben, in many ways, you just captured your big white whale um, for as long as I've known you. Um, For as long as we've known each other, you've been working to get the Nord Stream 2 pipeline project shut down. You were working on this in the U.S. State Department. You worked on this after you left uh, government service. Well, it's been shut down. But the problem of Russia weaponizing energy has not gone away. How do you see the current standoff in the approaching winter unfolding? Same as I asked Agnia, what should we be watching for? What challenges and opportunities lie ahead? And since I know you keep a very close eye on Germany, and the very first thing Agnia said we need to be watching is Germany, in your answer, please let me know how you see the situation unfolding in Germany. So, yeah, go go ahead.
1: Yeah, absolutely, Brian. And I'll, I'll tell you, um, if I'm meant to be the Ahab in this, uh, in this podcast story about Nord Stream 2 podcast saga, um, it, you know, it, 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 I've been asked a number of times about that, especially in the immediate aftermath of Nord Stream 2 being stopped. You know, did I feel vindicated to um, you know, longstanding objections that uh, a majority of the Transatlantic community had to Nord Stream 2. Are, are those those points of view vindicated? Well, yes, I mean, they they are in the sense that it, it was very clear that Russia had used projects like Nord Stream 2 to, to advance its hybrid pressure against the EU, whether it's by advancing strategic corruption, which we can talk about, um, whether it's um, uh, by uh, putting energy pressure uh, across, uh, across the EU. The problem is... Um, you know, the timeline, uh, again, you are talking about time horizons, this is this is a big question here. Um, in, you know, in, in 2019, U.S. sanctions uh, stopped the construction of Nord Stream 2. Uh, and then a second round of sanctions in 2020, going into 2021, would have basically continued to prolong that stopping of Nord Stream 2 by extending technology-calibrated sanctions from 2019 to a variety of other sectors uh, to make sure this project couldn't be advanced. Germany pressed the United States to abandon its sanctions policy um, in mid 2021. In exchange, they had a joint statement in July 2021 that came out and said, in no uncertain terms, that if Russia weaponized energy, then Germany would seek sanctions at the EU level uh, against projects like Nord Stream 2, you know, on Russian energy export infrastructure. Um, throughout 2021, since that agreement was, uh, you know, was was arrived upon in July of 2021. Russia intentionally created gas scarcity by undersupplying uh, gas storage facilities that, in many cases across Western Europe, Russian state-owned enterprises like Gazprom actually had a, a, you know, an ownership stake in in some way. And so that really showed that Russia was weaponizing energy and doing it in a way that it would limit the foreign policy latitude by creating this gas crisis already before its invasion in February 2022. Um, to to undermine the foreign policy latitude of Western uh, Western democracies to respond to its aggression in Ukraine. So when you get to that sort of point, um, you have to look back. What did Germany do? Well, at the time, Germany not only did not follow its own agreement with the Biden administration, it also went ahead and approved, uh, or, or you know, basically sent a, um, a uh, an assessment to the Bundesagentur. The federal energy regulator from the econ ministry, where the econ ministry basically came out and said that no, Nord Stream 2 does not um, harm the energy security interests of Germany or their other EU member states. That was in November 2021. Well, you know, ultimately, in the 48 hours ahead of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, Germany reversed that decision. The Schultz government uh, that had come in had. Uh, ultimately reversed that decision, uh, led by, I think, mostly Minister Habeck in the the econ ministry. And 24 hours after that, basically, the day of or earlier in the day before the invasion, the Biden administration fully imposed sanctions that were congressionally mandated uh, mandated on a bipartisan basis um, that brought this project to an end. The problem is, you know, all of that—that that, you know, feeling of vindication or anything—that doesn't last long because only six to six or eight hours after that took place, and Nord Stream two was effectively stopped. Russian, uh, you know, Russian aggression began on a wide scale in Ukraine. So we were too late. Is the bottom line? Uh, the West in Western democracies were too late. But as Agni is saying, there's a lot of homework that still is left to be done, uh, which we can certainly talk about, and that includes in Germany of of what can be done to make sure that this never happens again. Well, the, the two of you seem to be in agreement on the, the fact that Germany is the linchpin here. Um,
2: and Germany is the, for lack of a better term, I hate to use this, 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 this word to, to describe a, a close ally, but Germany is the main problem here, right? In, in, in Europe, what is the problem as you see it? Ben, I know you're a kind of a scholar of, of, of German affairs uh, to a degree. What, what, what's the problem? Why is Germany behaving in a way that appears to the outside observer? Uh, at least to, to many
1: inside observers inside of Europe, to be against the interests of Europe and indeed against the interests of Germany. Yeah, well, this this goes back many decades to the policies of Willy Brandt, this, this so-called Ostpolitik policy. In, in other words, during the Soviet era, to have this uh, level of economic engagement with the Soviet Union um, to hopefully bring about its change, um, you know, towards uh, you know, ending its its authoritarian ways and and um, opening up its its economies. Ultimately, um, you know, there's there's you know, decades of arguments of what ultimately brought about the fall of the Soviet Union. The passing of um, uh, of, of Gorbachev yesterday has reignited those discussions right now. Um, but the the bottom line is uh, in the 2000s. Uh, there was a return of this policy, this so-called Neue Ostpolitik, and this idea of wandel durch khandel, or change through trade. And ultimately, they were dealing at the time not with um, you know, the original idea of Ostpolitik, which was reaching out to all of those countries in the Eastern Bloc, in the Warsaw Pact and the Soviet Union, but rather specifically just to Moscow, basically Putin's, uh, um, Putin's Russia. And because of this, you have a situation in which um, there was a whole lot of, um, uh, of, of handel, a lot of trade, without much wandel or change. Uh, the Russian Federation under Vladimir Putin, if anything, became more and more authoritarian over time, more aggressive uh, and more kleptocratic. And if anything, all of those uh, you know, elements of, of corruption and, um, and, and authoritarian tendencies flowed downward instead of this idea of Western liberal democratic norms, flowing upward in changing the Russian Federation for the better uh, to be more part of the international democratic community, you know, the opposite happened. And that's when we see former German Chancellor Gerhard Schroeder joining the board of Nord Stream One after, uh, appro- uh, you know, approving Nord Stream One while in office back in 2005. And so.
2: increasing German uh, dependency while he was chancellor. Absolutely. Absolutely. Chancellor. Exactly. And, Agnia, you wanted to jump
0: in with something here? I want to let Ben finish, but I will I can follow okay, up.
1: Okay, go yeah, Ben, finish up, and then we'll come back to Agnian. We've talked about these, these concepts for, for some time, but this idea of uh, Schroederization, this, this idea that this is not just Gerhard Schroeder, but many um, Western European, in particular, officials that have gone on after leaving the public trust and worked for authoritarian state-owned enterprises in the Russian Federation. So that includes Karen a uh, former Austrian foreign minister, with whom Putin danced at her wedding. Um, you know, joining the board of Russian state-owned oil company Rosneft. It has uh, former uh, Austrian uh, Econ Minister Hans-Jörg Schelling joining uh, Nord Stream 2 AG as a senior advisor, uh, former Austrian uh, Chancellor Christian Kern who penned a letter with then um, uh, German Vice Chancellor Sigmar Cabriel against U.S. sanctions, against the countering America's adversaries through Sanctions Act uh, that was passed on a bipartisan basis targeting Nord Stream 2 uh, back, uh, you know, in 2017, basically leaving office after his time in office and becoming uh, a board member of, of Russian state-owned Russian Railways, and then of course François Fillon, the former French prime minister, right. who left office and was uh, on the board for a while of not just one but but two Russian state-owned oil and gas trading companies, and so we need to understand that these sort of, you know, these sort of trends haven't been fully reversed, right? Some of these folks have left the Even with positions. sanctions
2: have not been fully reversed.
1: Yeah, you know, none of these folks have been sanctioned. And so, yes, some of them have felt maybe small case shame um, in, in terms of, of leaving office, or sorry, leaving these positions um, since Russia's invasion. But, you know, it took Schroeder quite a long time and going through public pressure, saying he doesn't do mea culpas and things like this. And so this is why, um, you know, uh, Brian, and, uh, you know, I've I've called for a number of times, including before the U.S. Helsinki Commission um, and U.S. Congress, uh, calling on Senate and House members of that commission to pass what I'm calling the Stop Helping America's Malign Enemies Act, or Shame Act, the big Uh case shame, right, to end this ability of former... Senior officials to, you know, serve in the public trust and then leave that public trust and undermine democratic resilience by working then for Russian, Russian or other authoritarian state enterprises. That's got to end. No, I, I I would love to see that act passed, and I will
2: I'll uh, when when if that starts moving on the hill, I'll would certainly be in favor of doing a podcast just about that. Um, as far as Germany goes, I mean I see two dynamics at play, and correct me if, I, if you're wrong. One of them, Ben, you just very eloquently spelled out here, and that's the cynical corruption aspect. Um, you have a big chunk of the German industrial lobby and their patrons in the political system that are getting that are that are making a tidy profit on this. The other side of this is this um, this I think sincere, albeit misguided belief that Germany believes it can shepherd Russia into a more a more democratic future, which I think is uh, naive, um, but but sincere, sincerely held right? It's also misguided. There's this notion that Germany has this obligation to Russia because of the Second World War. Um, Well, and then I would argue if that's the case, it also has an obligation to Ukraine, Belarus, Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, and all of the other former republics of the Soviet Union who suffered um, as much, if not more. Um, Agni, I know you wanted to jump in a bit on the Germany issue here from what Ben was saying.
0: No, absolutely. I think that not only the German case, as uh, Ben outlined, I mean, again, Austria, France, and a number of other European countries that had become targets of Russia's, well, you can call it uh, gently gas diplomacy, or really export of corruption. But it was really, you know, that's the interesting point about Russia's, um, you know, kind of energy weapon. It's the oil that brings in money to Russia. But gas has always served for Russia as the means for that diplomacy, the means for coercion, the means for political influence abroad. And in the Central and Eastern European countries, Russia has used more the the stick, right, when it came to gas. Um, And in Western Europe, it has used more the carrot and typically dangling the carrot in front of, you know, governments and individuals, incentives to essentially sign up these gas deals, which already by the time Germany was, uh, was looking into Nord Stream 1 and, nor- and certainly Nord Stream 2, there were so many alternatives available to Germany that frankly, Nord Stream 2 didn't make any sense from a markets perspective, from uh, you know, a kind of a global energy development perspective. It was purely done as a kind of you know, political relationship, uh, incentivized deal. And that, I have to say, is where Putin has been very effective. He has used this gas weapon, this gas carrot, and this particularly spread of corruption through its exports of gas very effectively. And I think that's the main problem. That's the main problem also when we compare... Uh, the vulnerable, well, democratic and authoritarian states, and in these types of relationships, we see the vulnerabilities of democratic states vis-à-vis authoritarian countries, because uh, you know, gas policy, foreign policy is being uh, determined by a few individuals in the Kremlin. As a and. As a you know as a national policy and then it's easier for an authoritarian government such as this to find weak individuals let's say in the West and subvert them
2: yeah and I, I'm glad you, you you brought this up because I wanted to drill down into this a little bit I'm glad you brought up the distinction between oil and gas because the sanctions have been placed on if I'm not mistaken on oil but not on gas um, and so and in general, these kleptocratic networks exist across Europe. You have you know, we've all read about the, the the shell companies that are spread across Europe connected to Gazprom with very opaque beneficial ownership structures and so on. How much have the, cha- the sanctions changed the dynamic? How much have the sanctions rolled back a lot of these uh, networks of malign influence? Um, it, 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 either one of you have anything to say about this? Has, has this changed? It, it, it has changed it, but how much?
0: You know, I think uh, there's public shaming, of course. uh, So that has changed it. And we've seen uh, really a shift in German national policy, but will they stick to it is a question. On the other hand, when we really look at the facts on the ground, I mean, Russia continues exporting, you know, crude oil, it continues exporting LNG to European markets, it continues to exporting coal. So this continues on a daily basis.
2: Even despite the sanctions, is this sanctions busting, or is this loopholes in the sanctions regime?
0: There's various loopholes. First of all, um, and I think there is some of uh, probably co- covert exports, essentially where um, you know some oil that's being exported, it's being labeled as Kazakh oil. It may have some Russian oil there. We don't know how much, and so there are things of that nature going on.
1: Uh-huh. Ben. Yeah, I mean, just just adding on to that. I mean, in terms of loopholes, uh, some of it it's it's by design. Uh, you know, there 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 are certain areas of uh, of the world that have haven't been want to follow along with you know the the global push to to pressure Russia, um, and you know, and and even you know transatlantic sanctions haven't been um, complete to to bring about a full oil and gas embargo, or at least an oil embargo, and, you know, some areas, uh, you know, there are loopholes that you could drive a truck through, right? You have, uh, or a ship in this case, you have ship-to-ship um, technology support firms and, and entities that are allowing for oil transfers offshore uh, between Russian um, oil export cargoes. Uh, cargo ships and and whoever the off taker is and I, I know that there's been a lot of attention given to uh, a number of Chinese firms that have basically built up this capability and are are undergoing these dangerous ship to ship transfers mm-hmm. on the high seas uh, several hundred miles off the coast of Portugal all right? and this is this is bad because it obviously continues to allow uh, uh, the Putin regime to benefit from its um, export of oil and therefore you know keep its economy afloat and keep its war-making capability and war machine funded, um, you know, and, and, and you know, to extend its its aggression and horrific criminal action, um, you know, against Ukrainian sovereignty that's going on every day. Uh, but at the same time, you also have the risk of a major, major environmental catastrophe, um, having these, uh, you know, dangerous ship-to-ship transfers going on on the high seas. It's, it's not a— Normal operation um, to, to do that at a, at a you know more or less com- commercial scale, uh, and you know this is where you know we need to make sure that our our sanctions include technology sanctions that that include you know parts of the energy supply chain and, and industrial chain to make sure that we close off those those avenues as much as possible. And yeah, and Ben, I know you're dying to talk about Siemens turbine gate um,
2: and tech export controls, so have at it. <laughs> Well, I okay. just
0: wanted to jump in here. And if you're you know, really looking for the numbers, uh, Global Witness uh, out of the UK, they're doing investigative uh, research into this, how much Russian uh, fossil fuels are essentially exported to Europe and the U.S. ports even. So right now, over the numbers from the last week of August are 11.6 million barrels of crude oil, 536 cubic meters of – 1,000 cubic meters of LNG, and uh, 339,000 tons of coal uh, that uh, Global Witness estimates have arrived at European and U.S. ports from Russia just in the last week of August.
2: That's just to Europe and North America. Mm -hmm. Yes. That's not including what they're exporting to India and China and everybody else. I mean it Ben, you I mean, we're talking about the sanctions loopholes. I know you were you you were up in arms about the whole Siemens turbine gate um and the, the, the loopholes in the tech export control. So if you could kind of like address that for our readers in, in, in
1: kind of layperson's terms. So that's yeah, I'm absolutely. Saying. Well, first of all, you gotta add gate to something, right? If it's something right. of this scale, you know, in the Siemens turbine gate, I think that's the right way of Characterizing it. That gets you in the right mindset of what's going on here. First of all, let's just, you know, separate from the, the, the Siebens turbine situation, I, I do want to point out to uh, the listeners that one of the, you know, really um, successful and in, in growing in success areas of Western sanctions policy have been technology sanctions writ large, not even related to energy, but specifically just technology uh, sanctions that have, have limited the ability. Uh, of the Russian Federation to import finished products, to import uh, you know components and subsystems, things like uh, semiconductors for a variety of applications uh, that have really you know forced um, you know the Russian defense industry to cobble together uh, systems. And you know we've seen anecdotal evidence. We've also seen evidence under testimony uh, from various U.S. officials from the Biden administration that have shown how successful that policy has been. When you have situations where Ukrainian service personnel are recovering things like drones and things like other, you know, other, uh, you know, unmanned aerial systems that when they open them up, um, they're cobbled together with semiconductors that are ripped out of commercial uh, electronics, things like washing machines and dishwashers and things like that. So it's working, <laughs> right? You have you have that. You have, uh, you know, enterprise technology sanctions across a number of enterprise software firms. Uh, you know that basically these firms have pulled out of uh, out of uh, servicing and updating security patching and things like this. That's going to make it much harder for the Russian defense industry to maintain its edge, doing things like uh, mechanical and electrical engineering, things like uh, you know, working with software systems like SolidWorks, PTC, Creo, and um, uh, and, and Autodesk Inventor. Okay, so that that's the technology side. That's what's working well, and you know the Russians really haven't found a way around this. Okay, so in the absence of any better idea you know and Agni and, and brian we've talked about this for years uh guess what putin's referred to a well you know war anti-sanctions tactic which is energy weaponization um and, and this this comes back to what happened on june 15th so um i, I don't know if we want to say anything before i, I can do the quick timeline but uh of, of this this saga but if there's any comments on the the tech sanctions i just want to make sure we cover that first before, no, before that's i good. go in I think, okay. yeah. Okay, so, so here's, here's what happened. June 15th, Russia cuts Nord Stream 1 flows to Germany and, and points onward by 60%. It claims that the reason for this is that there are a number of turbines in Canada near Montreal at a Siemens uh, turbine servicing facility uh, that, that they can't access due to sanctions. And as a result, they're cutting gas through Nord Stream 1. Um, okay, so you know, as the cuts took place, the German government issued several statements that basically debunked this. The Bundesnetzagentur claimed it couldn't identify any causal connection between the missing gas compressor on the uh, compressor on the Russian side and the big reduction in supplies. You had uh, Germany's uh, you know, energy and econ minister uh, Habek. Coming out and saying that this is political. You have the econ ministry itself making statements saying the turbine was a replacement part that was meant only for use from September, meaning its absence could not be the real reason for the fall off in gas flows. So again, Russia is using energy as a weapon. You know how surprised are we? But astonishingly, encountering you know its own assessment, the German government then heavily pressured. The Canadian government to undermine its own energy technology sanctions regime, part of its broader technology sanctions regime, which, like the rest of the you know the you know global democracies participating in it, are successful, and claim that if Canada didn't waive its export controls, you know Germany would be thrown into an immediate economic turmoil. It results in civil unrest and things like this. We heard uh, Minister Baerbach say this, and uh, you know Scholz and you know make make comments to, to these uh, you know these. These, um, you know, these ends, and you know, I say that th- that's a pretty questionable conclusion. It gives really too little credit for the German electorate, um, some 70% of whom, according to recent surveys, want to continue to support Ukraine despite high energy prices. But nevertheless, Canada relented. It sent the first of the six turbines over to Germany, uh, and, and basically that turbine has sat in Mulheim, Germany, at the Siemens facility for the most of the summer, spending its summer sitting there and you know, having cameo appearances by uh, Chancellor Schultz standing in front of it saying, look, Russia, we have this turbine. You know, the Russians basically saying that, you know, this doesn't solve the issue. We need other uh, other turbines. There's always other, you know, other, um, you know, paperwork, uh, commitments on sanctions, things like this. Again, the whole idea supposedly was that Germany pressured Canada in order to call Russia's bluff to show to the German people that this ener- energy weaponization. Obviously, I think that is very disingenuous because, you know, one year before, Russia was weaponizing energy very overtly, and the German government refused to acknowledge this and, and refused to level with its own electorate. So nevertheless, um, you know, this, this in, in the mind of, 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 um, of, of Chancellor Scholz and, and of others, you know, proved to the German people that Russia is weaponizing energy and it's not the German government's fault for not transferring these and in Canada. Okay, fine. But then two weeks ago, They continued, you know, Schultz, or I guess a week ago, Schultz visited Canada, and just after that visit, Canada relented again and basically stood by the waivers that it it, had approved for uh, the five additional turbines and and said that it's going to be sending those turbines uh, to Germany as well. Again. Doubling down on this this policy really unpopular in Canada, makes, which has a very large Ukrainian population. Yeah, absolutely it makes no sense. And, and it under, you know, again undermines the, the technology sanctions controlled regimes because it teaches the Russian Federation and teaches the Putin regime that if it if it makes a big enough stink in terms of energy cutoffs and uh, energy pressure that it can maybe get concessions elsewhere. And so today, earlier today, we saw headlines again that, guess what? For the second time this summer, Nord Stream 1 is again fully shut off. It's already cut by 80 percent over the summer. Now it's uh, now it's back to 100 percent. And, you know, we'll see what happens. Now, Russia's able to get away with this because energy prices remain high and because they've
2: found other markets uh, to, 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 to get revenues, and, uh, most notably India and China. Um, but this is not going to—this— th- th- the current status quo is not going to not going to remain. I mean, I see three broad problems we're dealing with here right now. Number one, keeping Europe warm this winter. That's the like that's job one in the, in, in the short term. That's the crisis. The second is tightening up this sanctions regime so Russia can't kind of drive you know, tankers through these loopholes. Um, and the third, and so I want to get into the second half of the program, is creating a new energy regime. And just to get us kind of, kind of to move us in that direction, uh, Agnia, before I shift into the second section, you and I have been talking for years about how LNG has kind of changed the, the nature of the gas market. It's turned it into a more globalized market, like oil, um, where rather than these localized like- markets tied to pipelines. Um, what is the time horizon on that, and how soon before we can really begin to see the benefits of that?
0: So the reality is that uh, it is here. A global gas market already exists. A global LNG market already exists. Countries have already taken advantage of that, uh, like Lithuania, like Poland, and I mean that's why even countries like Bulgaria, when Russia recently announced that they will cut off gas supplies to Bulgaria, Bulgaria said, fine, you know, we we're, were not planning on buying you know, Russian you know, gas, um, and we will find alternative ways to meet, meet that demand. So these uh, options are, he- are here for European countries. I think it's another element where Russian propaganda honestly, has been so successful in trying to create this narrative that Europe could not exist or would struggle without Russian gas. So there's a Vast number of LNG import terminals across the entire European continent, not in Germany, unfortunately, as of yet. (laughs) But, you know, other countries have taken action and they've seen the writing on the wall, not just because of Russia, but overall, because this is where the gas markets have been turning to. Just LNG has become uh, more appealing for consumers uh, because of the flexibility of the markets, uh, because of, again, ability to have spot uh, you know, spot market trades, short term contracts, and so on. So in fact, uh, the share of LNG imports in Europe's overall gas imports has continued to grow consistently over the last 10 years. I mean, it was 20% before the war, it will continue to grow now. Um, In fact, Europe is also rising as, you know, a region with the greatest appetite for LNG. I mean, it's expected to account for 15% of the global LNG demand. Um, And again, these recent events, well, the war in Ukraine will certainly only speed up Mm -hmm. these developments. So, and I would also like to say with this, um, you know, with Nord Stream 1 now and Russia's announcements of repairs, shutdowns and so on, it's not that Russia has found alternative markets. I think Russia is playing a game of chicken with Europe. Mm. Who's going to flinch first? it's a tactic of intimidation and scaring europe the reality is that yes russia is sending uh, you know fossil fuels to india and china but they're nowhere near in the volumes that they can re- they can shift away from the european and market and nowhere near the price exactly that's the key element china has always uh, squeezed out <laughs> the best possible deals from russia and uh, you know They're nowhere near the prices that the Europeans were paying Russia. So So it's a game of chicken. And again, Europe shouldn't flinch. Yeah, no, Europe shouldn't flinch,
2: and time is not on Russia's side here. Again, the key thing I keep coming back to is we can get through this winter for Europe. We're going to probably be in a pretty good place come next spring, I think, and that's a good way to segue. In a few moments, we will continue our discussion take out our crystal balls to look at what a post-war energy landscape might look like and what it means for European security. I'd like to remind you, you are listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas, Arlington. Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UK McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Joining me from Los Angeles, California is the one and only Agnia Grigas, a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center and a author of the books The New Geopolitics of Natural Gas and Beyond Crimea, The New Russian Empire. Also joining us from Cambridge, Massachusetts is Benjamin Schmidt, a research assistant. Associate at Harvard University, and former European Energy Security Advisor at the United States State Department. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. If you do, please leave us a big fat five-star rating and review, as that helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org, and you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical
0: которые мы получили только что владимир путин не слушал это навальный
1: работу сотрудники вас с новым веком we
2: of course don't know how the war in Ukraine will end but we can be reasonably certain of one thing there is no going back to the antebellum status quo not for the European security architecture and not for the energy landscape because if there is one thing this war has driven home, it is the security risks for Europe from an overdependence on Russian hydrocarbons. So what shape might the post-war European energy market take? Agnia, what is your best case scenario? And how do we get there?
0: First, the best case scenario would be that you're right, Brian, that indeed <laughs> <laughs> this has finally and fully woken up Europe to the threat of the Russian energy weapons. So that would be the best-case scenario. But really, in this best-case scenario, we would see that these events would be a real catalyst for a complete transformation and transition in the European energy markets. First of all, we would see that transition and transformation in terms of effective diversification, once and for all, away from Russian piped gas. And another element is that this would also serve as a catalyst for Europe's green transition mm-hmm. in the future, so away from fossil fuels overall. So this would be my best-case scenario, short-to-medium-term short uh, diversification away from Russia to stop funding this regime, and second, more medium-to-longer-term, complete diversification away from fossil fuels.
2: So you're talking about diversifying supplies, things we talked about in the first half: LNG, primarily US LNG, uh, nuclear, renewables, and to a degree coal, which is you know not great from a green perspective. But that seems to be where Germany's going instead of going nuclear. Um, could could the nuclear could nuclear kind of be a big piece of this if countries like Germany and Austria can get over their opposition to nuclear power?
0: So. Nuclear may have a renaissance in Europe. It's uh, also interesting to watch Russia in that area. Russia has really built up its uh, uh, Rosatom, uh, its nuclear part of the business, essentially trying to create a certain new Gazprom. Again, that would serve uh, as a source of uh, you know diplomacy on the back Mm. of these nuclear deals and establish alliances, and again establish different countries' dependencies on Russia for nuclear f- fuel, for nuclear reactors and you know, those types of relationships. But, um, you know, here again, Germany is one to watch. I mean, Germany had made a decision to close its last nuclear reactors, uh, well, this year. The plan was also to phase out coal by 2038. In the short term, or this time period, Germany has in fact been increasing its coal consumption, which goes so counter to their energy revolution, their uh, Mm. efforts to turn green. Um, As a result, um, Germany is facing kind of an energy shortage, and there are expectations even before the war began that Germany would be facing blackouts in this period from 22 to 25. So what, to what extent would Germany phasing out nuclear, to what extent other countries may uh, look at that? Again, the Baltic states had uh, you know, long discussed building a regional nuclear power plant, for example, but that project never took off. And it has been kind of similar similar types of assessments in other countries as well.
2: Sticking with you for the, for the moment, Agnil, let's go to the dark side. Uh, what, what's, what's your worst case scenario?
0: <laughs> Honestly, my worst case scenario is in fact that this belief that um, the energy landscape uh, has shifted permanently in Europe um, is just a view among us, yeah. Russia watchers and energy export experts. Because, uh, you know, for us, I think we've seen the writing on the wall for many years already. Yes. And you, you, you would have assumed that 2009 already proved all the lessons that Europe needed right. to learn. You would have thought that 2014 would have been sufficient. Right. But, you know, every single time, it just seems it's not enough. And uh, I think some countries in Europe, some political leaders... Just kind of want to always put this, you know, put Russia's use of the energy weapon behind them, forget it, and hope for the best. Mm -hmm. Still hope that they will get some sort of great deal, that somehow they'll just get that uh, cheap gas, no strings attached, even if, uh, you know, they keep, uh, I don't know, getting, you know, smacked in the face over and over and over again. You would
2: think that the largest military operation um, in Europe since the Second World War would kind of focus attention and wake people up. But then again, I thought the first territorial annexation in Europe since the Second World War would have been sufficient to wake people up. And it wasn't.
1: Ben, same same, same question to you, the light side and the dark side, best case and worst case scenarios. Well, I mean, let's just talk about wake up calls. 2014, you're absolutely right, Brian and Agnia. I, you know, that, that wasn't enough to deter Nord Stream 2. Nord Stream 2 was in the works, and, uh, you know, Russia had its, uh, you know, illegal invasion of eastern Ukraine, of the Donbas region, and illegal annexation of Crimea, and Nord Stream 2 was put on ice for less than a year, right. such that when I started at the State Department in August 15, uh, 2015, two weeks after I started, Nord Stream 2 was reannounced and, and brought back. So this idea that we are in a, a situation um, I guess I'll start with my dark side, uh, uh, assessment. So very much like Agnia, this idea that we have, uh, gone through, um, Chancellor Zeitenwende and we're at a point where this, uh, transformation is irreversible. Um, I, I, am really concerned that that can turn around very quickly. Um, I, I've been in discussions, you know, in panel debates and things like this, even since the war began with some commentators in Germany that, um, when I've said that we need to end these projects for good, projects like Nord Stream 1, Nord Stream 2, Turk Stream 2. Uh, you know, if it's got a stream in it, you probably probably should be uh, <laughs> concerned. Uh, that's, that sort of thing. Uh, they said, well, you know, not so fast. You know, we can't ostracize Russia, you know, forever. And I said, you know, there's one thing about, you know, ostracizing the concept of a country of Russia forever. Uh, and, and another thing about, you know, the Putin regime or authoritarian Russia, and, and I think that you need to make it clear to them, make it clear to Putin, that there will be no return to business as usual. And I think that there's so many entrenched interests that have been there for decades in, in the commercial sector that you know I don't know that they have learned their lesson uh, yet. And so I am really concerned, uh, and that's why I keep pointing out that there can't be return to business as usual with Putin's Kremlin. So that's kind of my, my dark side assessment. Um, on the light side, I think there's a lot that has been done. I think Germany committing to finally building the first diversification infrastructure, um, you know, to, to diversify away from Russian energy dependency since the European Energy Union concept was, um, was, was deployed from Brussels in 2015. Think about that. All of the, the great projects that Agnia is talking about, they're all along NATO's eastern flank, whether it be Lithuania's independence terminal, whether it be the Baltic Pipe project from Norway to Denmark to Poland, the LNG terminal in Poland, the gas interconnector Poland-Lithuania, uh, the uh, interconnector Greece-Bulgaria. You know, the list goes on and on. But those are all along NATO's eastern flank. During that same period of time, I've challenged German experts uh, and, and former officials to, you know, name one project that Germany built to specifically diversify hydrocarbon-wise away from Russian energy dependence. And the answer is nothing. Nord Stream 2 was the, was the response, and that would only entrench that further. So the fact that Minister Habeck has, has basically come out and, and you know tried to fast track these LNG terminals on the, the the North Sea coast in Brunsbüttel and in Wilhelmshaven that's an amazing you know step forward for Germany uh, something that you know Eastern Europe had been doing for years so you know Germany has to learn from uh, from Eastern Europe in this case right has to be doing its homework like like the rest of Europe had been doing for many years and the other thing that I think that has to happen fast. Uh, is leveraging as much infrastructure that already exists as possible and reconfiguring it yeah. for, uh, for use to bring in non-Russian uh, LNG in this case, right? Because, again, so ultimately we need to address the climate crisis, and ultimately we need to be building renewables at scale that can— can wean uh, Europe as much as possible off of Russian energy, but also off of hydrocarbons. But the problem is we're in an active you know, uh, hybrid warfare contingency right now. And so the, really, the only thing you can do fast enough is swap hydrocarbons for hydrocarbons, obviously leaving nuclear on and things like this. So one of the things you can do, have Germany, uh, you know, and this is something that the Econ Ministry has already floated, expropriate the German section of Nord Stream 2 in German territorial waters, sever it physically from the rest of the system, install two floating storage regasification units to plug into those two trunk lines, and then allow for non-Russian LNG from, from these floating LNG terminals to be imported. But not only that, but utilize the Lubmin gas sub and the Oigol pipeline onshore to bring gas and, and continue that diversification effort. At the same time, it would be a tremendous political statement that the physical, you know, uh, uh, representation of Russian malign energy influence is over. That there, there is a severing of these ties, and that there will be no return of business as usual. <laughs> ben, if that actually happened, I don't know what would happen first. The three of us would die from shock, or the three of us would be <laughs> dancing
2: in the streets.
0: <laughs> I gotta tell you, Brian,
1: when they announced, that I've been calling for this for a long, long time. And when uh, you know, when when the econ ministry came out, there were headlines in in June. I, I, I nearly passed that. I could not yep. believe it. It was, it was, it was shocking. Well, and that, that's, a, that's a very optimistic note to wrap it up. I'm watching the
2: clock, and I, I'm, I'm very attentive to everybody's schedules. Do either of you have any last uh, remarks you'd like to make before we wrap it up for the week?
0: I'd like to say I hope this epiphany lasts for Germany and for other European countries. And I hope it lasts not only in the case right now of the war in Ukraine, but overall the risks that we as democracies face vis-à-vis authoritarian governments.
2: Yeah, and I, I would add, I hope that we all learn from your native Lithuania, which showed the way in terms of getting off of
1: Russian gas. Any last thoughts, Ben? Yeah, first of all, always listen to Lithuania. I think that's that's a, <laughs> that's an easy rule we can all abide by, especially fans of the power of vertical. So that's that's number one. But number two is you know you know the North Stream saga. We've talked about this for for many years, Brian, on this this podcast. And you know, is it the final chapter? Uh, probably not. I think that there's there's a lot left to go in in that that saga, you know, in, in re- also in relation more broadly to Russian energy dependence that the EU has on on, on Russia. But the um, you know the the other thing is you know were critics of Nord Stream two validated? Yes. Did it make us feel good? No, because there was a large scale war against Ukraine that happened less than 24 hours later. It was far too late. But this is exactly why we need to take those lessons learn from them and then deploy them and make sure that there's no backsliding in terms of our understanding and that our foreign policy national security policy is driven by not only uh, geopolitics, but the technical reality of these energy systems as well. And values. From your lips to God's ears, on that
2: note, we shall wrap it up. That's all we have time for today. I'd like to remind you, you have been listening to the Power Article Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name's Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Joining me from Los Angeles, California, has been the one and only Agni a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center and author of the books, The New Geopolitics of Natural Gas and Beyond Crimea, the New Russian Empire. Joining us from Cambridge, Massachusetts, has been the one and only Benjamin Schmidt, a research associate at Harvard University and former European Energy Security Advisor at the U.S. State Department. Thank you both for an enlightening discussion. Thank you so
0: much. It's a pleasure to be here
2: again. Pleasure to have you. Thanks, Brian. Always great to be on the pod. And also like to thank our awesome, a production team in Arlington, Texas. Dylan Holberg has been ably filling in for Lance Ligas in the virtual control room, keeping all the lights on and all the complicated machines well-oiled and in working order throughout our discussion. Dylan also handles our all-important post-production duties, cleaning up my many, many messes and making us all sound a lot better than we do in real life. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast, on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn, and we are working on fixing the snafu with stitch so tune in on that you can also access the podcast read the power vertical blog and access all power vertical products at powervertical.org. and you can follow us on the twitter at power vertical the power vertical podcast will take a week off next week as I will be traveling to speak at the McCain Institute's international conference but we will be back in action on September 16th and until then I leave you with the ambient sound mix that's been prepared by our
1: production team